Um, okay, let's start. Um, They're on. Hi, Mark and Barbara. It's good to. I mean, uh, Karen. It's good to see you again. I. Um, we will say. We yeah. I have. I I told. I know I was there. I I told Karen that I've been looking for a church and haven't seen her. I you you guys won't. Well, I mean, you'll appreciate this for me. I hope, but the first time I met Karen before, I think we. We're doing this. I can't. I can't remember when. Yeah, it was before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I remember we were in church together. I think it was a Saturday evening when we go to mass. Uh, I don't think it was during. It wasn't. I don't think it was during the day. But uh, it came time for peace, and I reached over to this strange woman to offer peace, and she took my hand, and I felt like my hand was in a vice grip. <laughs> I, I had. I had. I, I had never in my life felt a woman's grip that strong. I mean, immediately I took to her because that's the sort of thing I've been teaching our sons, you know, since they were young, and here she was gripping my hand. Is single pump or double? <laughs> <laughs> she was gripping my hand more firmly than I think I'd ever gripped anybody's. And she, Somebody's one-on-one, no grippy hand. She left a, an indelible print on my memory. Um, you know, you're not the only one to say that. <laughs> I'm, <clears throat> I'm sure. I mean, that hand grip is so clearly a part of who you are when you give a... Just know that when you give a peace to her, it might mean war as well, so... Mm -hmm. I have to be careful. Sometimes I forget people are maybe more frail than I am, <laughs> especially like older women. Yeah, you're not frail. That's not a word that I would use to describe you. Let's start. Any any prayer requests tonight? I know Karen's got a couple. Um, um, for those of you who came in late, she's just been diagnosed as having a couple of things. Karen, what are they again, the, the two things? To... I have a hernia and I have osteopenia. Yeah, preliminary so stages and, and she's taking vitamin C and D and she will be okay for the second, I, even though I know she's worried about it. Um, any prayer request? Let's let's start. In the name of, oh boy, Doc. Hold on, I'll be right back. I wanted to get the Magnificat for this. Everybody enjoying the four quartets again? <laughs> I'm enjoying the well I read them every day. <laughs> morning well, that explains today. a lot, Mark. <laughs> let's. Sorry, let's. I wanted to get the readings from this morning because I wanted to. I wanted to use them for our prayer. I, I thought the readings were um, spoke so much to our time. Um, any? Okay, let's. Sorry, I'm sorry. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you have them? Um, I've only done this a few times on line with the groups, and I particularly want to do it this morning because I thought the readings spoke so directly to our world and to us. So if you guys will allow a couple of minutes extra for our prayer, 
Um, I'm going to read the two readings from Mass this morning and then use them as a prayer, okay? For the reason that I gave. The first reading is from the book of Maccabees. From the descendants of Alexander's officers, there sprang a sinful offshoot. Antiochus um, Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus, once a hostage at Rome. He became king of the year 137 of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days there appeared in Israel men who were breakers of the law, and they seduced many people, saying, Let us go and make an alliance with the Gentiles all around us. Since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us. One of the reasons I want to do this is because it seems to me this is the predicament we're in. Um, numbers of Catholics are leaving the church at alarming rates. People leaving the Protestant church. Um, masses of people are turning to the secular world. Our, I think our reading of Chesterton is really timely. I didn't plan it for this, but I'm, I'm just glad that we're reading it um, under these circumstances. But the reading speaks to um, the Israelites abandoning their faith, accommodating the secular world um, as if it were more attractive. So, let us go and make an alliance with the Gentiles all around us since we separated from them. Many evils have come upon us. The proposal was agreeable. Some from among the people promptly went to the king and he authorized them to introduce the way of living of the Gentiles. Thereupon they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom. They covered over the mark of their circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They allied themselves with the Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people, each abandoning a particular customs. We should all be united together in our political covenant, whatever it is. All the Gentiles conformed to the command of the king and many children of Israel were in favor of his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. On the 15th day of the month, Chislev, in the year 145, the king erected the horrible abomination upon the altar of burnt offerings, and in the surrounding cities of Judah they built pagan altars. They also burned incense at the doors of the houses and the streets. Any scrolls of the law which they found, they tore up and burnt. Whoever was found with a scroll of the covenant Whoever observed the law was condemned to death by royal decree. But many in Israel were determined and resolved in their hearts not to eat anything unclean. They preferred to die rather than to be defiled with unclean food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Terrible affliction was upon Israel. It's the word of the Lord. In the gospel reading from Luke, I, I, um, I, I won't read the whole thing, but you all remember it because I'm sure you've heard, heard it more than a few times. Um, in one of the other Gospels, um, the blind man is named. I think it was Bartimaeus. Mm -hmm. Here in Luke, he's not named. And he approaches Jesus and he keeps saying, have pity on me. And the people around him, the disciples, keep shooing him away. Tell him to stop being a nuisance. The guy persists. And finally... It ends this way, Jesus stopped and ordered that he be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, please let me see. 
Jesus told him, have sight, your faith has saved you. He immediately received his sight and followed him, giving glory to God. When they saw this, all the people gave a praise to God. Um, when I read that the night before last, just to be up on the reading this morning, I was shocked by it because it, it could have been a perfect description of America today. Our foundings were religious. The people came here. Um, to They didn't come to oppress people or um, take away the, reserv- or the living situations of the Indians. Or They came because they were fleeing religious persecution and they wanted to build a city in which they could worship God. Um, they, um, their, relig- their motives were religious. Lots died. They, the motives were great enough that they put their lives at risk. They weren't just economic or political mastery over a people. Or um, the the psalm following the Old Testament reading goes like this: Indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He's indignant in seeing the people around him give up their ways. Um, Though the snares of the wicked are twined about me, your law I have not forgotten. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may keep your precepts. I am attacked by malicious persecutors who are far from your law. It goes on and on and on, um, showing his awareness that the people around him have forsaken the law, the Ten Commandments, which Christ followed strictly. Um, that the people have forsaken God's law and turned to the ways of this people. So what we've got in the two readings um, are a description of a people accommodating the world, going along with it because it seems easier and more pleasant. And in the New Testament reading, we've got um, um, one of the scenes in which somebody comes to Christ and says, um, help me to see. If you put those two readings together, it seems to me that it's impossible to miss that what's going on in the first one is that people don't see. They just do not see. Their preoccupation with whatever the world offers them is so great that they accommodate. They go along with it. And in the Psalms, the, the speaker is, is expressing his sorrow, some anger, at what's happening because he's aware that everybody around him is losing it. They're caving. They're giving in. Indignation seizes me because of the wicked. Through the snares of the wicked are twined about me. Your law I have not for. This person is saying that even though all this is going on around me, I will not forsake you. So we've got on the one hand feelings of indignation and anger at seeing a people um, become apostate, to turn away from their beliefs. And on the other hand, you've got a guy in the Gospel who's saying, give me my sight, help me to see. And then when Christ gives him his sight, he follows him. So, sorry for the, but I hope, I hope you see why it's worth reading. Here's my prayer. Lord, you, um, your words to us, um, here again at the end of the liturgical year, as, as they've been for words, are warnings. They're reminders of how the dangers that we face and the appropriate response, indignation, anger, sorrow, on the one hand, 
And then the other, um, a man who wants his sight back, who can see you. So we're being asked to hold together indignation, sorrow, anger with love, hope, a new way of seeing that brings a man to you. So my prayer tonight for all of us is that you heal our sight. We think we see so well. All the people in the Old Testament reading thought they saw and they gave in. So here I'd like to ask a special grace for all of us that we not give in, that, we're, that you're asking us to hold two things together, the law of your Father um, and your obedience of him, the way you, you never abrogated, you never did anything to undermine his law. You didn't give attention to the, all the Jewish observances, but you would have never disobeyed your Father. So help us, um, strengthen us in a commitment to the law of, of God our Father and to you for the love and mercy that you bring to it. Help all of us to have the courage to hold on to both of those, to do all we can to make them real in our lives. I ask a special blessing on Karen as she looks forward. Quiet her heart, quiet her heart. Um, help her to trust in you and be not afraid um, and to take her vitamins, to, to be good for a change. Um, and <laughs> um, knowing, um, trusting in you, um, whatever happens, she's in good hands and she's got our prayers. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Karen, I hope you don't mind my ribbing you in a prayer. <laughs> nope, not at all. Good. Okay. Okay. Um, quickly, four quartets. Um, we're doing the third part of Bert Norton, the first of the quartets, remember. And so far, he remember, he he opened with these very philosophic lines that about time and um the impossibility of redeeming time if we're limited to time, that time can only be redeemed if somebody comes from outside of to help us, otherwise we're stuck in time. Takes us to the garden and then he talks about this dance um, and he, he speaks of it in, term, in apophatic terms. He can't place it in time or place, he just knows that it's going on. So he speaks about the resolution of its partial horror, the struggle that we all have, yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Time past, time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at Smokefall be remembered. Involved with time, with past and future, only through time, time is conquered. We can't escape it as much as people today, the Gnostics or the spiritualists who want to find some ways of escaping time because its burdens are heavy. Remember his line, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And here, um, 
The enchantment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Only a god could finally endure um, what it would take to atone for our sins. And he's asked us to join him on that cross um, in order to love the way he does to bring him into the world. That's our call. That's the call to all of us. So those are the first two sections. Here in section three, he continues along these, the lines of these same themes. Here is a place of disaffection, time before and time after, in a dim light. Neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty, with slow rotation suggesting permanence, nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal. Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, min and bits of paste paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. Remember, our tendency is to live in one or the other, what we've done in regret or look forward to and wish for, but to live in the present moment fully, certainly with a Christian faith, is to bear burden. Eructation of unhealthy souls into the faded air, the torpid driven on the wind that sweeps the gloomy hills of London, Hampstead and Clerkenwell, Campton and Putney, Highgate, Primrose and Ludgate. Not here, not here the darkness in this twittering world. Descend lower, descend only into the world of perpetual solitude. World, not world, but that which is not world. Internal darkness, deprivation, and destitution of all property. Dissecation of the world of sense, evacuation of the world of fancy, inoperancy of the world of spirit. This is the one way, and the other is the same, not in movement, but abstention from movement while the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways of time past and time future. Um, he's asking us or saying, he really belongs to the whole mystical tradition of the church with John of the Cross and others, mystics, in saying that it's only by descending into this dark, this darkness, this dark night of the soul, where we give up all these things destitution of property, desiccation of the world of sense, evacuation of the world of fancy, and operancy of the world of spirit. Um, um, it's the way up, this is Dante, the way up is the way down. We can't make a good journey on our way up if we don't go down and make a place for the darkness to quiet all the desires um, that we have for the world um, and break the power that the world has for us. Um, it's by doing that, this is the church that we, um, we make a better movement up. Um, so that's section three. Section four next week is very, very short. And then um, section five is gonna concentrate on words.
on the word and the importance of the word in our lives. So. Okay. Um, to to Chesterton. Um, what I would like to do tonight is uh, um, I, I just think the last chapter, the authority and the adventure, the the act, the ground of authority for what we do, and the adventure that all of us are an adventure, and and from Chesterton's perspective, the fullest adventure comes with orthodoxy. If 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 we ever reach a point where we deny the importance of dogmas or fixed meaning, and things mean nothing. Adventure will stop. Romance will stop. Because nothing that we do will matter. It's only because we have certain beliefs, certain dogmas, that something can be lost that there's any real adventure. If there's no meaning to things, if there's no certainty or fixed rules, then we lose nothing. There's no adventure. There's no risk. There's no consequences. We're in chaos. So the, um, he's made it very clear that it's only when... Um, you hold to a set of beliefs that there can be any romance or adventure. Um, and it's on the basis of that authority of those beliefs that we, we find a help in what we're doing. I want to do a review, um, but I, um, I, I hope you all got the letter. And by the way, I just sent a, um, a, a very brief outline that I put together just before class. So you, you might want to go on into our site and take a look at it. You don't have to, but it's there. Um, I want to go to Chesterton, and, and what I'd like to do tonight is read more from Chesterton than I ordinarily do, because I think his arguments are compelling, and then just and then ask for brief responses as we go through it. But I really want to try to cover the chapter, because what it does is summarize, or it doesn't summarize. It gathers, to get, it gathers together, wait, Mark, it gathers together the major lines of argument and he responds to them. So in one sense he's focusing on the central issues that have been a concern of his through the whole thing and answering them um, one final time. But before we do that um, I, I wanted to um, go back and see if we could spend a few minutes on the question that Mark asked last week and the way that he put it because it it seemed to me that it was compelling and speaks it speaks so directly to a, a difficulty in the modern world so I asked you all if you would think about miracles in the works that we've read and if we could go back and pick up that question that he asked and Mark I'm going to try to paraphrase it here and if I if I'm if I'm missing it in some way um, correct me please but um, um, three things three things before we get there. These are background things. I want to cover them now, get them out of the way, and then I want to take up um, Mark's question. The background things are this. Um, we know from Scripture um, that, re that Christ repeated, because the whole issue that Chesterton was raising had to do with the philosophy of materialism, which is the governing philosophy of our modern age. It certainly is that for most modern educated people. It's a form of monism. Monism, one thing. So they believe that one thing governs all things. That one thing is matter. So we're not talking about materialism in the sense that 
most of us today can be materialistic because we love things and we fill our homes with too many things. And it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about materialism as a philosophy, a worldview of life that explains everything. It's monistic. It's singular. There's only this. And the people holding that view generally tend to um, deny miracles. They don't fit with that philosophy because it brings, it brings in something that's non-material. Christ performed all these miracles. This goes directly to our point. He performed all these miracles, and again and again and again, when he did it in the presence of the Pharisees or the scribes, he was um, denounced. They accused him of being blasphemous, of curing on the Sabbath. They saw him doing things that nobody else could, performed all these miracles. Here's the great irony of those passages, certainly for me. I'm horrified. Every time I hear those passages, every time I read them, I'm aware. Here's this man performing these extraordinary acts. Nobody else could do them. Healing the blind, healing the man with a leper or the leprous hand, the deaf, um, the demonic. He healed those people again and again and again. And if the scribes and the Pharisees happened to be present, they looked at him in horror and saw nothing but bad. So here's a man performing the, these actions which only have good in them, and because they don't fit in with their philosophy, they condemn him. They accuse him of doing these things. So all they see is bad. So what he does to, to some people is nothing but good. But in their eyes, they take what's good and make it bad. Now remember the reading today was of a people, the Jewish people, um, abandoning God and accommodating to the way of the world. And the gospel reading was a man coming and asking him to be cured of his blindness. He didn't see. If you put the two together, it seems to me it's compelling. It's a compelling example of the way in which a whole people loses its sight. They just don't see anymore. If a miracle happened to take place in their presence, the likelihood is that they deny it. We saw this when we watched the movie um, um, Man for All Season. You know, when Thomas Moore stood up against Henry the King, when Henry had declared himself the head of the church, the whole Catholic world, up until that time, England was Catholic. It was in the midst of a division. The Protestant Reformation was underway. But they supported Henry. I mean, they just gave in. So we've seen examples of this same sort of thing in the Old Testament. We've seen it in the modern world. It's a question of how much it's going on today. The, the point I want to make here is that over and over again, we see Christ performing a miracle, and lots of people don't see that a miracle is being performed. Christ also asked that those who loved him follow him, that they take him to the world. They could be the source of miracles with their own actions if their faith was great enough, but they could also make the arguments that he made, even if people didn't like them. It didn't matter. They were to take him in his spirit, not obnoxious, not beating people up. They were to take him in love to the world in order to try to help the world find him. That's the first thing, background, that I want everybody to hold on. The second is, remember when we're reading Chesterton, Chesterton's writing to a, a Protestant nation. England's fundamentally Protestant. 
as a nation. Um, it, it made an accommodation to the political world when Henry declared himself to be the supreme head of the church in matters concerning dogma and doctrines. He could declare, he could decide on his own as a king what they would be. So the whole church accommodated itself to the political world, and in that sense, it took on a worldly aspect, a worldly quality into what it would do, even, even in its religious beliefs. And the reason I'm saying this, I'll come to this in a moment, there were lots of people who expressed their um, approval, their, their approval, their support of Chesterton's orthodoxy. But <laughs> I'll read some when we start them tonight. But they did it in a backhanded fashion. They talked about the brilliance of the thing and thought it was all wonderful fancy. The Chesterton, <laughs> kind of one of the guys says, I can't, I'm, I'm going to quote it to you. He said that it was one of the most complete, I'm not going to get the words right, I'm sorry. It was one of the most complete affirmations of the impotence of reason that they'd ever read. I read Chesterton. <laughs> the amazing thing about the work for me is that he's taking a matter of faith and he's using all of his powers of reason to support that faith. He's taking the Apostles' Creed, the, the Apostles' Creed, and giving us all these reasons for taking it seriously. I, I myself have never encountered a person who was more capable of using reason to defend his faith, except St. Thomas in all of my reading. That's the second thing, England's Protestant. The third thing, remember that in our world, as we approach it, or certainly in our time, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, what was happening in Europe and in America was one of the effects of the sciences because people had, um, um, were so taken by the authority that, that they seem vested in the sciences that they saw it as a means of explaining everything. Um, and one of the outgrowths of that, the, this new role that science took in our lives was called naturalism. So if you look at, you guys wouldn't know this, I know it from literature, if you look at the literature being written in that time, Howells, Dean Howells, and others whose names I can't remember right now, the Red Badge of Courage, I can't remember, Stephen Crane. If you look at them, they're all, Hemingway who comes out of that, Hemingway comes out of that school. That naturalistic school based itself on this premise, that the world is a man-eating place. We saw that in, um, Old Man in the Sea, that it's a doggy dog world. And there's a heroism in overcoming it, but that's the nature of the world. It's, it, it's Darwin, it's the survival of the fittest, that whoever can survive um, will do so, but he's, he's got to be cunning and strong. And So naturalism produced what in Europe was called in films and novels, a new wave. Hold on to that, hold on to that term, a new wave. It was a new wave in film, and all of the people who came under the influence of that new wave saw it as their responsibility to give a greater emphasis to the poor and poverty and misery in the world. Because up until that time, too great a, too great a concern, too great an importance was given to the wealthy, the comfortable, the bourgeois, the respectable. We've been encountering that. We encountered it in Hawthorne, in Melville, in Hawthorne, particularly in Hawthorne in our age this note of respectability 
that for, for the Protestant world is seen as a sign of being saved. And it's become so for a lot of Catholics. So it's, it's a sign of God's blessings, the gospel of prosperity, Father Flynn used to call it. But the focus, uh, the, the concern of these new artists was to show darkness, that the, that the real center of our lives was misery, that we could not escape it. So all of the dark views from the Reformation, that man was depraved, from Freud, that he was perverse, all of these dark philosophies began to take hold and give a focus to, our, to man's misery. And that became a focus. So filmmakers or novelists or poets who didn't write in that vein were living in a fantasy world. What we were talking about last week in terms of fairy tales, that they're living in a world that's not real. So for these writers, misery was more real than joy. Chesterton will address this in this last chapter. It's one of the reasons I want to get to this chapter and read through it. Because he will say, as much as Christianity makes everyone aware of the importance of a cross and suffering, the ultimate center of Christianity is a joy. It's bliss. So those are just three notes that I'd like everybody to hold on to. That Christ did performed all these miracles and that lots of people found only bad or evil in the good that he was doing. That, that just stuns me. How many people today don't see miracles because their eyes are colored with this belief in misery, that that's the ultimate explanation of things? Two, that England was Protestant. It had accommodated to the world. It's one of the reasons why so many people were critical of Chesterton, even though they admired what he did. Um, and three, this this school of naturalism, that, or what I would call naturalism, springing from the sciences. Um, now, with that behind us, um, I want to pick up um, Mark's question. Remember that last week when, when we took up that question, I had asked everybody to go over the list of the isms that Chesterton had taken on. Um, the, the, all of the current worldviews that, that were the most popular and that were converging to create a certain mindset in the modern world that made the modern world distinct, very different from any historical period before. Materialism, progress, the idea that of man's perfectibility, evolution, immanentism, the, the real meaning of life is in, in, inward, I mean, different forms of spiritualism or Buddhism, what Chesterton called necessity or various forms of determinism that certain things can't be other than they are, and finally Arianism. You remember the Arian belief, um, Arian was one of the early um, um, heretics who professed a belief that Christ was created like other men. He, 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 his origins weren't the Son, he didn't share divinity with the Father and Spirit. Um, so he, he didn't have the soul of a God. When the position of the church was that God had the soul of a God and a man, complete, both were unified. That's why the Eucharist is so important for us, because we believe in that 
that that wafer, this physical thing, is all matter and all God. Luther diverts from that in, in, his, in his doctrine of um, consubstantiality, that the physical wafer remained physical. It was only by an act of faith that it became real. So when you put it in your mouth as an act of faith, it, be, it was changed. Afterwards, you could throw it away. We can't throw it away because we believe it's both. It's fully God, fully man. That's the real presence of Christ. So Arianism rejected that. So those were the views we came up with. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to take any, a few minutes with any of them, if any of you want. But I'd like to take up Mark's question. You know, when he, when he was taking the position, I think he was playing, correct me, Mark, any, please, when I'm done. I think he was playing devil's advocate. He was taking the position that most of these people, if you presented the, this opposition between materialism and miracles, that materialism disallows it, it won't allow for miracles. They would say that people who believe in miracles live in a fantasy world. Look around you and look at the misery of the world. Where are you going to find miracles? Um, Chest Chesterton spends a lot of time in this chapter on that, so I want to get to it. But, but I want to go back there um, and give a few minutes to it. And so I'd, I'd like to pick it up to get anybody's response to it, particularly yours, Mark. But I also want to put it in the context of the works that we've read, because we all have those in common. I gave you, I asked you all to look back at the works. I, by the way, I included them in the, uh, in the outline I gave you, um, hold on, that I sent um, to, the, to, the, uh, to the site. And at the, end of, um, at the end of the notes I gave you, I included just a tentative list of some of the works that we've read and asked if you could find miracles in them. So I want to go back to that um, and ask if you've had any thoughts since Mark opened our discussion on that with his question. Um, are, what's your response to people who say um, you live in a, a Disney world, a, a fairy world, that the sort of things you say can happen can't? that the world is governed by matters, there's no such thing as miracles, um, get out of your dream world and, and get real. Let me just, if Mark, correct me if, you know, if I haven't put it correctly, but, but I want to put that out so we can pick up there. So anybody who, who has an inkling, and, and Mark, you, you had your hand up earlier, so you can go ahead and start. Uh, well, two things. The reason I had my hand up was to your earlier point that you want to read some more Got no problem with that as long as you let us ask questions to try and explain some of this. <laughs> Sometimes I read his stuff and I don't know what it is. I know, I know, I know. Okay. Secondly, um, it is partly what you're saying, but it's also to me the arguments seem the same as if someone wants to believe in fairy tales or if someone wants to believe in faith or, or whatever it is, right? It's the same mental argument inside. That someone can sit there and say, I can believe in this if it's not true, if you can believe in that and it's not true, and nobody can prove either person wrong, right? You can believe the sky is green all day long, whether it is or whether it isn't. Somebody can still believe that. And that argument is just as valid to somebody who doesn't believe in God, who can sit there and say, well, you believe in God, uh, and? You know, it, it, it's the same mental gyration. Yeah. Right? So that, 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 I guess, is, to me, they're both kind of arguing the same way. Right, beyond you know, take take belief out of it for a minute. Right, um, if they both believe in whatever it is, 
then it's valid to that person. Right. Whether it's true or not. Yeah. Yeah. No. Especially in today's society. Right. 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 Yeah. No. Um, By the way, just a thought. I'm going to add a little bit of an edge to your position here, because I want to. I hope it, it will imply an answer, even though I don't want to go there. I want to hear from everybody else. But I was once in a grievance meeting. I don't want to go into the details of it. It's embarrassing. It's God. I I don't know how to. I I don't want to do this. Um, as a faculty member at a college, I was in a grievance, um, and a woman took a grievance against me. <laughs> God, I don't I don't want to go into this. She had got infatuated with me as a teacher, and and was making advances, and um, we had a grievance committee meeting and the man who was a product of the liberal culture at San Francisco State made this remark. He said, perception is reality. What he was doing indirectly was giving weight support to the woman's position that even though I told her no and there wasn't anything there, her position was that there was. Um, that you hadn't said no loudly enough. You're right. That I even told her no, and I, I don't know if you heard Suzanne on that, but it was an actual statement. She said, because I said, I, but I said no, and she said, well, you didn't say it loudly enough. Anyway, the, the, the man who was leading it, the academic dean, made the comment that perception is reality. And it, it's another way of just giving a piece of another example to what Mark says. So if one person believes this and he sees the world that way, um, do we have any ground for answering him when somebody else has this belief and sees the world that way. Let me leave it there. Any, what, are, what, are your, what are your responses to Mark's question? Any, anybody want to jump in here and offer things? Barbara, you were here last week. Karen, Karen wasn't, so I want to give her a chance to catch up with us, but do you have, do you have a response to Mark's question? Or the Unfortunately, um, and, and I think there have been miracles in my life, and I could present them to people who don't believe in miracles, and they would be no more convinced because I said it or I believed it than they were before. Right. And the only response I can have to that is that I feel sorry for you because you're living in a, a limited world without God or without an opportunity for really wonderful things to happen. But I could never convince them, I don't think. Right. And um, I might even say it's a matter of faith. I've been blessed to have faith, and I'm sorry that you don't. But going any farther than that, I don't know how you can make somebody believe who doesn't believe. Yep. Yep. Fred, can you, I want to, Karen, I'm, I'm not ignoring you. I'm just, um, I, you, you weren't here and I want to give you a chance just to hear what, and then I'd like, I'd like to ask you to come in on this, but before you do, Fred, do you have, or Fred or Francis, either one of you or both of you, Francis, I would love to hear from you after Fred's done. Well, I, I, I guess I was just with Barbara on this one. I thought the issue was, are you more constrained if you believe, or if if you don't believe in miracles, and you are, if you do, and and I thought what Mark was arguing was he didn't necessarily see that you were less constrained 
or more limitless if you believed in miracles than if you weren't. And, you know, it comes back to something, I guess we, we heard once that says, do miracles occur before you, because you believe in them? Or do you believe in them because they occur? And to me, I, I don't think I could ever make an argument for someone who doesn't believe in miracles that they are more constrained because of it. Or, or even vice versa. It's just that I guess I personally believe that if you expand your horizon, your, your level of, of belief in miracles, you are, you are just by definition going to be more open less constrained because a personality of that type, at least my experience has been, is much more creative, much more open, much more able to accept others' ideas and willing to discuss them as opposed to shutting them out because of something that you believe in and what they're presenting to you conflicts with that belief, therefore they must be wrong. Yeah. So to me, it's, it's a whole question of a complete personality and how that personality is going to ex- respond to various and sundry um, input that, that might occur over their lifetime. Francis, do you, do you have something? No, he took mine. Oh, <laughs> don't do that. No, we were talking it, it, before. <laughs> no, we were talking before. So next time I'll let her speak first. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, so, Mark, did I misinterpret what you? No, 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 no absolutely no, not. No. I thought you play. I thought you said it very well. Um, and I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Right, that. that and, and what Barbara also said was, you know, if somebody doesn't believe, you know, my, my mom always had a saying, right? Faith is a curse. Because if you have it, you can never get rid of it. Right? And if you, if you find it, it'll always be there. If you don't want to find it or you can't find it, you probably never will. It's unfortunate. But it, it, it's, it's, if it's there, you know, it's, it's got a hold of you and you can never get rid of it. Even the people who say they lost their faith or whatever, eh, when it hits the fan, believe me, they still believe. Yeah. Uh, at least in my experience. Yeah, but lots um, of people don't. That's a that's a pretty dark way of putting faith. But oh no no, I don't see it as a dark way at all. That yeah, curse is a yeah, negative thing. Yeah. But it's something that you just well to call to call something a curse is. But anyway, oh. Karen, do you have a do you have a response to this? I want to get to the book because Chester is going to answer it all, but. But just before we turn to him, do you? Yeah, as you guys were talking, it made me think of um, one thing. Uh, I think the comment was it was hard to get to convince people to believe in miracles. But what I think in terms of that is every, I don't know, 70 or 100 years, there's kind of the miracle of the Eucharist that someone ends up with actual flesh and bones in their mouth when they take the Eucharist. And that's kind of hard evidence to not believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, Doc, do you want to jump in? No? Let me offer one thought and then anybody who wants to respond to it and then we'll we'll cut this short and turn to Chesterton because he takes this matter up. It's probably the central matter of the last chapter, so 
Um, when Mark presented it, he presented it in terms of two people holding beliefs in, in the context of the question of um, is one of them richer than the other or one of them more constrained than the other? Is one of them more limited? Um, you can, you, you know, if you, if you looked at, let's say, an ape and a man, um, you can, you can you, in terms of analogies, you can say that the living, the world, if we put it in terms of a metaphor of a living room, that the living room for the ape is going to be much barer. It's going to have less in it than for the man. The man is just going to see more in reality than the ape will. Um, he's, conscious of, he's conscious in a way the ape isn't. So there's going to be more dimensions, more levels of meaning to the man than there is in the ape. And the, the question that we were dealing with is, is holding to a materialist belief um, more restrictive? Does it limit your, your experience of the world more than it would for somebody who believes in miracles? Because remember, the man who believes in miracle accepts the same material world, because miracles only come into the world through matter. So he doesn't lose anything of the materialism. The question is whether the world is richer or larger. And I thought that I can't remember who it was last week said, yeah, it is. Because if you do believe in miracles or an afterlife, a spiritual world, that is a world that's not limited by matter, you're free to hope, to believe in an everlasting life so that you don't die, which would be the, I mean, when you, when you die for the materialist, that's it. Life is over. So everything for the materialist is reduced, limited to this world whatever it gives, whatever it doesn't. You can live in misery and die in misery. For the man who believes in miracles or in a spiritual world, a supernatural world, it's not limited by matter. He believes in a joy, I mean that was Dante's world, that's ever expanding, that continues to get richer and richer with each person entering it, according to the terms of that world. So in terms of wit of whether one world is more constrained or one more rich, it seems to me, and, and this was the, I thought this was the crux of Mars' question, each of them holds a belief. And according to that belief, that's what they see. The question that I tried to pose just last week when Doc said, take it out, I couldn't. I, that's something I didn't want to do because if you lose that, you lose the argument. The question is, which is true? Or, or hold on, which is more supported? Let me, let me try to stay with Mark. Which is more supported by facts or evidence? And at that point, it becomes a question of what anybody does with evidence. So it's not just a matter of belief, because if that were true, there's no, there's no reason for any of us in this room not because Islamic or Jewish. None. Either we, either we hold these convictions because they have the support of evidence, or we don't. So I don't want to eliminate, I, I myself don't want to take out the question of truth when Suzanne said, look, if you take it out, and because her point was, the, the guy who believes in miracles is going to have a much richer life because he believes in an afterlife. And I, I, I believe that, but I didn't want to remove the question of truth. So the question is, which truth, which belief, because both of them believe that the vision they have, the worldview they hold, is true or they wouldn't believe it? Which one has the support of facts or evidence? And if I can leave it there, I'll turn to the book because that's where Chesterton is going to go. Unless anybody wants to pick that up. But at least at this point, that's my concern. Because the whole point of orthodoxy was to show that there is this great 
there are these sources of rationality in the world that give support to the Apostles' Creed. And you won't find that kind of support in Judaism or Islam or any other Buddhism or any other religion in the world. He's making a case for orthodoxy, that that is the central gift of the European world. And there is this, this vast, these vast dimensions of reason that make sense of it, that, that show this is really the, this is the truth. And it's as if the world witnesses to it. So I'll go to Chesterton unless anybody, unless anybody wants to question anything or take anything up with that. But at this point, I'm introducing a, the element of truth, the ground for one's belief. Because either we can support our beliefs or they don't make any sense. Somebody holds a belief because he believes in them. Anybody who's Islamic is not going to give up his belief because he believes that's the truth. The, my question is, can I, for me as a Christian, is if I, if I had time with that person, I would, I'd want to have lunch and dinner with him, I'd want to talk with him, because I would want to raise questions for him and point out things that might, maybe not, that might help him see that there's something that he doesn't see in his beliefs. Otherwise, I have no reason, no reason for holding my beliefs at all, um, because I don't believe that faith and reason are, are um, contrary worlds. Uh, what's the word? Two different contradictory orders of reality. I believe they they dovetail. They come together. That's the great gift of our faith. So it's something I I myself don't want to give up. But yeah, Mark, go ahead. Okay. So how does that what you're saying fall in with? If you can explain it and reason it, then it isn't faith. Kind of by definition, right? I mean, you believe. Be, for whatever reasons you want to choose, but if you can explain it, it's like two plus two is four. There's, that's not faith. That's fact. That's right. I mean, gravity works. I mean, those are those are things of fact. We don't have faith for those. Yeah. But you know, God requires faith because you really can't sit there and say, if I just do this equation right and get this answer, then I prove it. It's done. Yeah. Because right? that doesn't exist. Yeah. So, so with the reason thing. You can say points to maybe certain things, but you can't prove it, right? We can believe it all day long, but it still isn't proof. Because yeah. if it was, then it's not fake. Yeah. A couple of things, Mark. Um, oh God. <laughs> we need to have you over for dinner some night. <laughs> or, or have dinner for the whole group. And, um here, let me, this is so complicated, and you are touching nerves everywhere, but let me, let me try as best I can. Um, the Protestant Reformation introduced an element of antinomy, of two things that can't come together. It's the Protestant world, Mark, I want you to hear this really deeply, because it's been a, I know it's, it's sort of under, it's underlaying, you know, so many of the things that you brought in your questions from the beginning. The Protestant Reformation um, separated faith from reason, made them antinomic of two contradictory orders. They don't belong together. Okay, they do not. The Catholic Church has never, ever, ever, ever held that position. Ever. It's one of the distinguishing marks of our Catholic faith. The Catholic position is this. 
and I want you to hear this really deeply. Um, um, where there is mystery, there is always more to be known. Now hold on to that. Where there's mystery, there's always more to be known. Our belief is that God is intelligibility itself. He is light. We use our reason to try to penetrate that light. So it takes the form of natural law, it takes the form of our moral actions, we can use that to guide us in the things we do here through our, our work of reason. If you've read St. Thomas, and I, by the way, Mark, here's, in fact, I'll recommend it to the whole group. I would recommend that all of you get this book called The Summa of the Summa by Peter Kreef. It's just a very brief selection of questions from the Summa um, that, so that it, anybody who's interested in growing in their powers of reason to strengthen their faith will find to help with St. Thomas because St. Thomas is taking a position absolutely contrary to the one you're taking, Mark. I mean, that's how, that's how at odds that position that you're describing is with our church. It really is at odds. I, I don't know what your mom said on this year, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's at odds. It really it, it is at odds. Read St. Thomas and you'll find St. Thomas saying, faith and reason go together because the source is the same. God is nothing if he's not intelligibility. Where there's mystery, there's always more to be known. Reason um, is the, the natural power that we've been given by God. He's the ultimate source of it. And it's by means of that that we can enter into a relationship with him more deeply through our faith. But the two are not set at odds with each other the way they are for the Protestant world. That's why, that's why, hold on, that's why John Paul wrote that. I would ask, I mean, here, another, another book for you guys to read. This is John Paul. Fide Ratio was one of the most important books that he gave. Benedict's lecture, the, the talk that he gave in Germany at um, Regensburg. Regensburg on the Logos is dealing directly, dealing with an academic audience with this same subject. That in the fundamentalist world, there's a tendency to divide things in terms of black and white and put things against each other. That's not the Catholic tradition. Where there's more, to, where, where there's mystery, there's more to be known. Reason helps us enter into it. The whole effort of our life is to bring those two together. Hold on, go ahead. But Mark wasn't putting reason and faith separately. He was putting faith and fact separately. So if desk is there and it's solid, that's not a matter of faith. That's a matter of fact. Here, let me take up what Suzanne is saying. After Hume, the skeptic English philosopher, I, I don't know if you heard what Doc said, but she's saying Mark was talking about fact and faith, and not, but I, I'm equating the two and I ask everybody to do that because there's no difference. I, it, it isn't something to quibble about at all. Hume said, you can say that that desk's there, but it's not. It's like an act of faith to say it, because the, the rational mind is, you know this from our readings, we know it from our own discussions, the rational mind is capable of explaining things away. But, but you know that the position that I've been taking is that a good reason, a healthy reason, deals with what's factual, what's before us, and it's only on the basis of that we can do anything. Let me, let me make this more basic. Um, I don't want to separate faith and reason. The church doesn't want to do it for this reason. Anybody who goes to faith, who goes to God through faith, has to do this. By what means does that person come to faith? 
If that person cannot hear a word or make sense of a word, whether he hears it or reads it, he can't come to it. These are preliminaries to faith. If you've not heard the word of God or seen something or read scripture or heard somebody, why would you believe? It's a blank world. There's nothing there for you. It's only on the basis of very fundamental uses of reason that we can read a sentence, that we can understand a statement that a person gives us, a person who says God is real, that we can begin to move, grow in our faith. So all faith assumes a reason in the natural order, or we couldn't get to it. The position that St. Thomas takes, who is the doctor of the church, is that faith and reason belong to the same order. They, they, they um, dovetail. Faith strengthens our reason, it, or our faith. It helps lead us into it so that we can see into the mysteries of God. He has, he has no qualms about saying there are some matters of faith that are beyond beyond the scope of reason. So St. Thomas will say, you can prove certain things in the world using reason. You can't prove the Trinity. You cannot prove the Incarnation. Those are fundamental mysteries. But he says, and this is where he will not give up reason, you can offer probable arguments for the Trinity. It's what I've done in the book that I've just finished. You can offer probable reasons. I've got a chapter to vote. I'll send the chapter, you guys, if you want to look at it. I'd love to hear your critique of it. Um, you can give probable arguments, but you cannot make a scientific proof of it. And, and I want to just be careful here. Marco's using the word fact. Remember, to, there, there's such disagreement in the scientific community of what constitutes a fact. Some scientists are going to claim certain things that other scientists will refute. They'll say, no, that's not scientific. So it's not like we have an understood ground of what constitutes a science. St. Thomas would say you can, make, um, you can make a demonstration, and I don't want to go through it, it's too elaborate, but that reason makes us capable of doing that. It can give us certainty about things here in the world. Faith is something beyond reason, but faith can, or reason can help us move into that we can use probable arguments. So we find that the two are dovetailing. They don't exist in these black-white conditions in which most people place them today, particularly the material monists, because the monists can say miracles can't happen. And Chesterton say they can. That's where we were last week. Let me stop there, because I, really I really want to turn to the text, unless there's, unless something I've said needs real clarification if I've been confusing on anything. I don't want to leave anybody confused in the the points that I'm trying to make in response to Mark. I think the most important thing in, in response to him is that by by elevating faith the way they did and, and claiming that the world was corrupt, both Calvin and Luther, both did, they took away the ground of reason. That's why we read Hamlet. That's why it was such an important play for us. The ground of reason was taken away because reason's corrupt. And, um, the irony is both of those men, both of those reformers, use reason everywhere. <laughs> they used it to get to different ends, but, but they would say reason's corrupt. It's only by virtue of faith, it's only by virtue of faith that a reason can be pure enough to be of any use. They're antinomic. They belong to two contrary orders. Remember Dante. This is Dante and St. Thomas. 
In Dante's hell, the pagans were not being punished. The pagans were virtuous. They weren't being punished because they didn't commit sins. They were virtuous people. The Protestant world says if you don't have faith, you're committing, you're depraved. There's no act that you can perform that won't be evil. That was Melville's great burden with Ahab. We've gone over this. I, I claim that that was an exorcism. It's taking a Protestant demon and answering it. I mean, imagine growing up under a world like that where everything's black and white and everything's evil unless it's changed by faith. The Catholic world is that reason is good, it's inherently good, man is inherently good, not evil, the way the Protestant says, but we're wounded. We, have, we carry the sin of concupiscence, and that sin can be overwhelming. We, can't, we cannot overcome it without grace. That's a subtle difference, but it's real. The Protestant says we're corrupt, we're depraved. The Catholic says we're not depraved, we're inherently good. But we will never get to heaven on the basis of our natural good. We need God's help. It's a subtle difference, but it's real because in the second position, the counting position, the, the resources of reason, the, the great gifts of reason are protected. An agnostic, a, piece, a person who uses reason without faith will not... He, he, we saw this in Dante. I mean, it was like an, an education in catechism. Remember, all the, all the souls in purgatory, the, vert, the uh, or I mean, sorry, in the inferno, the, 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 vert, the, hold on to the words, the virtuous pagans, the virtuous pagans, first level, virtuous pagans. They lived in a dim light because they did not live by the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Those virtues are offered to us to enliven our lives, to give us hope, to a joy in the belief that there's a meaning to suffering. A person without faith, hope, and charity is going to live in misery. If all he's got is reason, reason is a great thing, but it's not a supernatural virtue. Is everybody following the distinction that I'm making? This is St. Thomas and it's Dante. This is the center of our church. Thomas is... The, the central doctrine, among lots of doctors in the church, he, he holds a central position. He's the one who, who's most clearly done everything he could to bring those two worlds together. That's our church. It's one of the fundamental distinctions between our church and other churches. Okay, if there's nothing... Um, Karen, no questions? Fred, do you have any comments? Okay, let's go. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a good bit of reading tonight um, because I just think he does such a good job, and 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 I'll stop periodically to take questions and responses. Okay. Chapter nine: Authority and the Adventure. Remember, remember two of the major points that he made in the last couple of chapters was. Um, that the 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 monism the the belief that only matter is real and an explanation for everything is um, for our church an absurdity. Matter's real. Christ took it on. We we don't deny it, but we don't take the position that everything can be explained by matter. Um, Chesterton took that up and tried to show the failings with that belief. 
he took up the idea of progress, the perfectibility of man, that we're, we're continually progressing, moving towards some perfect order. And in both cases, he said that unless we have a fixed goal, unless there's something fixed that relates us to mind and what the mind can grasp, that we're lost. Matter won't give it to us. The notion of progress won't, because the notion of progress keeps changing from one age to another. The title that he gave the last chapter, The Eternal Revolution, went straight to the point because he was making the point that if there's nothing fixed in eternity, we can't continue to have conversions. There's a constant romance because we hold ourselves to that ideal. That means that at every point in our life, we're constantly undergoing conversions. We're constantly, we give ourselves to the Holy Spirit in the hopes that we, we can become better and better and better. Um, through his help, not by just what we can do in the material world of ourself. So those are some of the major doctrines that he took on, among others. He begins chapter 9 this way. The last chapter has been concerned with the contention that orthodoxy is not only the only safeguarding of morality or order, but it's the only logical guardian of liberty. Innovation and advance. If we wish to pull down the prosperous oppressor, we cannot do it with the new doctrine of human perfectibility, that we're con continually um, progressing. We can only do it with the old doctrine of original sin. If we want to uproot inherent cruelties or lift up lost populations, we cannot do it with a scientific theory that matter precedes mind, because if that's so, everything is determined by the determinisms of matter. If we wish especially to awaken people to social vigilant and tireless pursuit of practice, we cannot help it much by insisting on the imminent God and the inner light. For these are the best reasons for contentment. Now wait, before we go any farther, I just want to make this point. What he's saying is, this is, this is one of the concerns I have about our discussions. We can change people's minds. There are arguments to be made. Otherwise, we're in a futile world. That is not where Christ left us. He's saying, if we want to make changes, if we want to make arguments, we can't do it X way. We can only do it these way. And he's given, the whole book has been devoted to explaining why those things are inadequate. If we wish especially to awaken people to social vigilance and tireless pursuit of practice, we cannot help it much by insisting on the imminent God and the inner light, for these are our best reasons for contentment. Go down... If we desire European civilization to be a raid and a rescue, we shall insist rather that souls are real peril than that their peril is ultimately unreal. If people feel that there's no danger or that all of our ends are determined, why do anything? Because it's going to happen anyway. He's saying that those philosophies undermine any real advance. If we wish to exalt the outcast and the crucified, we shall rather wish to think that a veritable God was crucified rather than a mere sage or hero. Because lots of people can believe in that heroes were badly treated or killed, and we can emulate them. But how many people will face a danger when it asks of them that they give everything up in themselves, their pride, their self-righteousness, Every, their comfort, their prosperity, to die because their God did. 
Above all, if we wish to protect the poor, we shall be in favor of fixed rules and clear dogmas. The rules of a club are occasionally in favor of the poor member. The drift of a club is always in favor of the rich one. That has been true forever. And now we come to the crucial question which truly concludes the whole matter. A reasonable agnostic, this is, I think, man's, or Mark's, you know, um, person that he is, is asking us to consider. A reasonable agnostic, if he happens to agree with me so far, may justly turn around and say, you've found a practical philosophy in the doctrine of the fall. Very well. You have your belief, I have mine. You have found a side of democracy now um, dangerously neglected, wisely asserted in original sin. All right. You found a truth in the doctrine of hell. I congratulate you. <laughs> you got your belief, I got mine. You are convinced that worshipers of a personal God look outward and are progressive. I congratulate them. But even supposing that these doctrines do include those truths, why cannot you take the truths and leave the doctrines? I'm going to take this question up for a minute because this is a major point. He begins the chapter with it, so hold on to that. I'll come back to it more strongly in a second. Why can you take all these trees but leave the doctrines? Granted that all modern society is trusting the rich too much because it does not allow for human weakness. Granted that orthodox ages have all had a great advantage because believing in the fall, they did not allow for human weakness. Why cannot you simply allow for human weakness without believing in the fall? If you have discovered that the idea of damnation represents a healthy idea of danger, why can you not simply take the idea of danger and leave the idea of damnation? If you see clearly the kernel of common sense in the nut of Christian orthodoxy, why cannot you simply take the kernel and leave the nut? What's interesting to me is he's taking, you know, if you listen to the language, you can hear, it's like St. Thomas taking all the questions around a circle. You know, some people claim this, 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 and then Thomas was on the contrary. If you look at the language, the language represents the various positions that people will take, the same language, the same ideas, and he's going to try to answer them. Um, leave the kernel and take the nut. Why cannot you, to use the cant phrase of newspapers, which I, as a highly scholastic agnostic, am a little ashamed of using, why cannot you simply take what is good in Christianity, which you can define as valuable, what you can comprehend, and leave all the rest, all the absolute dogmas that are in the name incomprehensible. This is the real question, this is the last question, and it's a pleasure to try to answer. Now, I'm going to read his thing, but I want to turn it over to you for your answers. The first answer is simply to say that I'm a rationalist, as he loves reason. He's not blindly holding on to a faith. I like to have some intellectual justification for my intuitions. If I'm treating man as a fallen being, it's an intellectual convenience to me to believe that he fell. And I find for some odd psychological reason that I can deal better with a man's exercise of free will if I believe that he has, he has one. Okay, hold on. He's going to say in these next pages, this is his language, not, he's going to say, neither side, because go back, go back to ethics of Elfland. Remember, he said that most scientists claim to be able to give a reason why something is so, why grass is green. He was very clear that that's dishonest. It's, it's, not, it's erroneous in some ways. Scientists can account that something is so. They cannot give a reason why. That constantly changes because the ultimate reason is a mystery. So already in an earlier chapter, he's made the position, taken the point that 
Scientists claim to have a, a grasp of the inner synthesis of things so they can explain it, articulate it. But that's not so. They can't explain why grass is green or why um, pumpkins continue to produce pumpkins instead of turning into stagecoaches. Those are his, you know. Here he's just picking up that same line. He says, I'm a rationalist. I like to have some intellectual justification for my intuitions. He's going to say, you can't make a scientific demonstration for all these things, but you can have convictions. And the modern world has tended to converge around three convictions. He will name them in a minute. I'm giving my convictions. The question for both of us, Mark, these are your terms, to substitute belief for convictions. They have convictions or beliefs. I have convictions or beliefs. The question will turn on how the evidence supports either one of them, what the facts will say. But let me, let me stop right here for a minute. He's asking the questions from this hypothetical you know, opponent. Why can't you give up all this stuff? Admit man's weakness. Why do you need a doctrine of the fall? Um, why can't you take the truths and leave the, the dogmas? Why can't you get rid of the nut, keep the kernel and get rid of the nut? Why can you not simply take what is good in Christianity, what you can define as valuable, what you can comprehend, and above all the rest, all the absolute dogmas that are in the nature incomprehensible? Get rid of that. And he says, it is a pleasure to try to answer. That is a basic question. So let me put it to you guys. Because you know we hear that argument all the time. Um, get rid of all these dogmas that you have. Christianity would be, a, he's made that argument in the last chapter, Christianity would be a better religion if it simply took all these universal truths that all religions have in common and got rid of everything else. Then Christianity would be fine. And he's saying no. Why? Why? What is it that in Christianity that makes it distinct from other reasons and makes it impossible? Could, you, could we take away dogmas and have our religion? I'd like somebody to answer that. What do our dogmas give us that other religions don't have? Mark, you've been putting everybody on the seat. Uh, you answer this question. Well... The, first, the, the tradition and the dogma goes as far back as any religion we can pretty much think of as far as Christianity goes. And everything has been argued throughout the councils forever. Every, every question about, if you read the history of the church and the history of the church councils, everything anybody's got has been argued about. Ad nauseum. Right. And killed for and defended and everything. Okay, um, you, you can't the church and the, the the dogmas of the church are the history of the church. If you get rid of it, you take away the foundation of everything. Doc, or Mark, answer my question. Get, why can't we get rid of the dogma? What would happen if take any dogmas you want? Take some of the central dogmas of the church. Get rid of them. What would happen to our church? Answer that question. It would die. Why? Because Explain they're one that. and the same. You can't it, you can't take away those dogmas and not have the church. Give a reason. Take a dogma, anyone, and explain it. Make it clear. I can't. It is what it is. Can somebody help out? Barbara, help us out. Take away, take away, let, take, sorry, let's, I'm not going to name them because I, I don't want to close this down. Take any 
any of the, let's say, three or four central dogmas of the church that the church rests on. People say, get rid of those dogmas, let Christianity take its place with all the, and we will all be fine. What's the, you guys are all superstitious, you belong to an old world, grow up. Take any dogmas, the central dogmas that you want, what would happen if we got rid of them? What would happen to our faith? Are you here? I don't know what happened to your faith. Your faith is a personal thing. Um, <laughs> there's nothing uh, objective to Wait, the dogmas claim that there's an objective truth to these things, and our personal faith accommodates that, not the other way. The Protestant turns that on his head. Okay, but uh, you're going to believe for whatever reasons you want to believe, and nobody's going to change that. Okay? If it does, then I guess you don't believe it that much. So. Barbara, do you. I, I don't want to press you. Do you have something, or. Don't, if you I, don't, I don't want to press, but just. The dogmas come first, and then the proof comes after. So he says, um, take the kernel and leave the nut. Well, the, the kernel comes from the nut. You can't separate the two. And I can't give you an example. Come on, you got Karen, I don't want an abstraction. I'm asking for a, for a concrete understanding of any one of the central dogmas of the church. This is, a, this is so important. Take any of the, let's say, three, four, central, whatever that... Take it away. What would happen to the church and why? Come on, I'm asking you guys. What's the why? Why, why, why are those dogmas essential to our faith? Karen, what's, what, can you jump in on this? Okay, Francis, your turn. <laughs> no, because you were... We're counting on you. Yes. No. Got it. No, come on, Francis. <laughs> come on. Fred even said he was going to like... Come on, I want you to... Um, he's already told me, so he needs to say it. <laughs> say it. Hmm? Say? If you take damnation. Here, can you hear Doc? <clears throat> can you speak up, Doc? If you take damnation as a dogma, that there is damnation. Mm -hmm. um, and what you take out of that dogma is there's a danger in not doing things right. Mm -hmm. Um, then you have missed a whole lot that's involved in damnation. So you've missed individual responsibility, um, you've missed having sinned against um, a god. god. I mean, you've, you've missed all kinds of other things that are part of the dogma that are not just there's a danger to human beings if you don't do things right. Yeah. Just, did everybody hear that okay? The other thing that I would add to it is just to give it a greater force. If you look at Christ, if you take Christ in all of his work, um, he's constantly making threats, constantly. And numerous times he casts people into jail, into a dungeon, to eternal punishment. Um, he warns people of, it would be better not to have been born, to have a millstone tied around your neck. If you take the reading that I gave this morning of the, you know, the Israelites who were accommodating to the world, take our world because our world wants to make everything nice. That there's nothing damnable or dark. I mean, the Protestant world is at odds with that, but 
you take the secular world by and large, the, the world will say guilt is a bad thing, bad feelings are a bad thing, get rid of them, feel good about yourself, have fun, don't worry about these things. So the mod this modern secular world takes what the church is called last ends, the final ends, death, damnation, you know, all of it. It takes all of those away. Um, and we've talked about, take, go back to Faulkner's The Town, when Montgomery uses respectability to hide. You know, that people can hide behind respectability, that so long as they conform themselves to the codes of behavior of their time, they're okay. They don't have to worry about things. Get rid of the church because the, the claim of the, the claim by so many secular is the church darkens everything. And particularly with the, I mean, the the one dogma that Doc is um, is mentioning about dogma or um, about damnation. Anybody else? Fred, you had. Um, did you did you want to offer something? Take well, a dogma, a specific dogma. Well, I think to take a specific dogma. One, one of the ones that impacts me the most is the fact that, that Christ was both holy divine and holy human. Yep. And we fundamentally believe that man can't, couldn't save himself, that only God could save us. And, if, and, and there's a whole expanse of, that, that comes from that concept that is fundamentally founded on the fact that in Catholicism, Christ was both completely divine and completely human, and that's only true in our religion, to my knowledge, anyway. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have that, then that basically collapses a large part of the Catholic doctrine. Fred, take that out. So take, if you could, take that and apply it to people generally. If we took that, I mean, leave the Catholic Church out for a second. Take that out. What would the effect be on people inside the church or even outside? Well, I mean, for me... Take it away. I'm not going to try to speak to other people, but for me personally, the fact that Christ was both fully human and fully divine makes me believe that it is worthwhile to to take heed in the message that he said. Because if, you know, I, I'm always skeptical about some, you know, fully human person coming and trying to convince me that their philosophy is right and my philosophy is wrong. I'm willing to enter into discourse, but I'm skeptical. The fact that he was divine says, I don't really have any room to be skeptical in this one. I better pay attention to what he said. Right, right, right. So, I mean, to me, that's... You know, that's why I use that. I mean, obviously, the fact that, that Christ's body and blood is in the Eucharist is another big one. And yep. that, you know, if, if, we, if we believe that we are forgiven as we go through that Eucharistic moment, then that, is, that can only be true if Christ was both fully human and fully divine. Right. So to me, that's an example of a big T, if you will, in the Catholic Church that is fundamentally essential or the whole foundation collapses. Yep. Can anybody jump in on this? Can anybody have anything to add to I mean I that's that to me, I mean there's lots of the Trinity is I mean the incarnation, but you put your finger on to me what is maybe the most central 
in the sense that it involves us all at a practical level of what we do with our lives. If you, if you take away the notion that Christ was fully divine and fully human, it has a real effect. Can anybody add to that what the effects would be if we took that away? If we, so, so, for example, the church said Arius was wrong. Arius said Christ was created like other creatures. He, he was not the second person of the Trinity. The church says Christ was the second person, so he carries div divinity. He carries the indwelling of the Trinity, of Godhead, in him. So when he says, God is in me, I am in him, he's not being figurative. He's being literally true. He carries his Father in him. He's a part of his nature. There's something in him. No, he is all divine. He carries divinity in him. Take that away. Why do the church say, here, here, it goes to Mark's position. Ari said, this is my belief. You live in a fantasy world. You say, what's the evidence? If you take Christ's divinity away, go to Fred's example that he is both divine and human, what difference would it make in our lives? Why is it important? Why is it, I, I'm going to say, why is it essential to our Catholic faith? What would happen if we took it away? We, um, the person saying, kept the kernel and threw away the nut. God, what would happen if we took that away? So the way we acted, our beliefs, why we did what we did. Somebody, please, Barbara, jump in. What would happen to us in our actions? What effect would it have on the way we acted towards each other, what we did ourselves, the way our minds worked? If he was only God and not man, then he wouldn't have been able to make the sacrifice for us. If he was only man, then he would be dependent on God and he would be just like we are. So he has to be God and man in order to do, to be who, he's, who we say he is. He's got to be both or our sin would not have been atoned for. Our sin was against God. So part, part of the reason for this, I mean, try to go more directly to your question, Mark, as I look at it anyway. If you take that dogma away, man has no way, none, I'm going to make this assertion, you might differ with me on this, but man has no way to deal with the depths of the sins in himself. If he'd been a, a scribe or a Pharisee, he would have said, following the law made me a good man. And that man would have believed it. But he would have, he would have been blind to his self-righteousness and his pride. He would not have seen the depths. What we get illustrations of, just to go to Scripture for a second, I mean, to go back to the point I was making earlier, when Christ was performing these miracles, these people saw nothing but bad. So they saw themselves as being self they saw themselves as being righteous, following the law, without sin. But all of them were in sin. If you take that dogma away, man has no way to deal with the depths of sin within him. And by the way, reason and mystery get cut in half the way they are in the Protestant world because part of, part of what happens in our attempt to answer that pro the problem of sin is we enter into a mystery. The whole, the whole push of the church is the sacraments help us, but they, they do so involving us in mysteries, the Eucharist, confession, marriage, 
No, all of them. So there's a dimension of mystery in every one of those things that we enter into. There's a lot that we can see by our use of reason. There's a lot we enter into through faith. And hopefully, the call of the church is, faith isn't static. It just doesn't, you know, it, I mean, the Catholics or the Protestants says, or the fundamentalists believe in Christ and you're saved. The Catholic believes that when you enter a world of faith, you're on a journey that you you enter a dimensions of mystery that will begin to shed light on your life the, the longer you're in them. So it really is a, a journey and an adventure. It's not just static. It doesn't just stop. If you take those dogmas away, you take away occasions for growing in mystery, in reason, in understanding, in love, all of them. In dealing with sin, you have no way to deal with it. You're left in a secular world. I've seen so many movies in which people start out really convinced that there's no reason to be disturbed about anything. They're okay. And it's like Oedipus. And I thought your comment on Oedipus was profound, Mark, that so many of us go through life and we hit a wall and we realize there's something wrong with me. And I didn't see it. And once that happens, you, you step into another world. You begin to see things differently. You change. The way you use your reason changes. The spirit you bring to things change. Let me go on, if I can. Um, unless anybody's got something more here. On the next page he says, If I'm asked as purely intellectual question why I believe in Christianity, I can only answer for the same reason that an intelligent agnostic disbelieves in him. This is going to the point I made earlier. I believe in it quite rationally upon evidence, but the evidence in my case is in that of the intelligent agnostic is not really in this or that alleged demonstration. It's in an enormous accumulation of small but unanimous facts. Let me, I'm going to jump in here with a conclusion of my own. He's saying, you cannot make a scientific demonstration one or the other. If you're Islamic, you have that belief. If you're Jewish, you hold that belief. If you're secular, you hold that belief. If you're Christian, you hold that belief. The question he's saying, all of us bring convictions to our belief. You can't demonstrate it. The question rests on, does it have the support of an, an enormous accumulation of small but unanimous facts? And he's saying that the weight of facts are in support of Christianity. If you put them together, you, you can no longer deny mysteries because so many things. Let me try to make this factually clear in, in work that we've done together. I commented earlier that in the, the gospel, we're given first-hand reports in gospel, not just one, by one person, by several. So it's not just private. It is not private. It is communal. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all give different accounts of things that happen. And um, what we see is each time Christ so often, or at least so often when he performed a miracle, lots of people disbelieved. They did not believe in what was taking place. In fact, they thought he was doing something bad. Now I want to go. I want to go to our works. You, you jump uh, just briefly for for just a moment. We started our work together, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure in the Iliad, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. We did Oedipus. We did the um, Oresteia, 
um, Aeschylus' Oresteia. We did Dante, Boethius. Um, we went up to Shakespeare. Um, we did uh, Moby Dick, and um, I think we did um, Scarlet Letter. We did Faulkner. We did Elliot, Murder of the Cathedral. Um, we've done a lot of works together. Um, I want to just pause for a minute to see if what Chesterton claims it has the support of the literature. Can any of you go back to the works of literature that we've read together and recall any miracles that took place that the people in the work did not see? So that a miracle was taking place when most of the people around didn't see it. And I would argue lots of critics would not see it. By the way, I've got Hamlet particularly on my mind because it's a recent play for us. Uh, Merchant of Venice, Hamlet, Brothers Karamazov, you go anywhere you want. Can you think of any works that we've read in which a miracle takes place and nobody sees it? Or maybe one or two, but for the, for the most part, it's not seen. Does that mean it's not there? And if it's there, does it make for a richer, more expansive life than somebody not holding that miracle? That was the question Mark left us with last week. Can you think of any works? Go back to, it's our, it's our phone. Go, go to recent works. Don't go back. I, anybody? Take Hamlet. That's that's a, a recent play. Doug? Are you talking about the ghost in Hamlet? Or are you talking about... I want you to tell me. Does a miracle take place in that play? or? Mm -hmm. One's man, one man's miracle is another man's coincidence. I mean. Oh, Mark. <laughs> The question is, this is the question that I've been putting to you since we started this line. Is there objective truth or proof? Is there evidence? Because, you know, if, if everything's just, I mean, you're, it's good to touch on Hamlet. Remember, the issue in Hamlet is a private revelation. The importance that that acquires after the Reformation is real. Um, is there objective evidence for the faith that we hold? Or are we in a la-la uh, land, a, a fairy tale land? What does the evidence say? Take Hamlet. Does a miracle take place in that play? Is there evidence for it? Go back to the Iliad. Go back to Brothers Karamazov or Dante. You go wherever you want. Billy Budd. Does a miracle take place at the end of Billy Budd? No. Yes, God, God, okay. yes. No, I don't. I never saw one. We talk, Mark. We talk. <laughs> were you hey, listening? Well, okay. If, just because it's in the, I mean, here, it's a miracle, but let me give it. The the we talked about this because it was not a small point at the end of Billy Budd. When Billy Budd is hung at the end of the of that story, the doctor, who's a scientist, makes the point. That Billy Budd was continent. He did not pee. And his experience was uniformly when a person's hung, their bowels release. Just they're, they're emptied. 
Billy Budd didn't. Why did that happen? Remember Billy Budd's last words were, God bless Captain Veer. I think Melville's showing us a miracle is taking place. The scientists won't see it, but does that mean it's not there? Something strange, something miraculous. And the, the interesting thing, it's an ordinary thing. And yet that ordinary thing takes on a huge significance in the story. All miracles take the pla- take, occur in very ordinary circumstances. Very often in our own lives, something sort of miraculous happens, and we often miss it because it just takes its place with everything else. Does that mean it wasn't there? Do we know? How do we know? Take, take Hamlet. Take Hamlet. Or in, any play, any work that you like. Or Ishmael. Ishmael's Ish- go ahead. Survival. Sorry. Oh, God. Did you hear Doc? Say it. No. Ishmael's survival at the end of Moby Dick. Wonderful example. If you remain, if you remember Melville's description, I mean, it's really important to pay. I mean, his words here. How many of us pay attention? How many? Truly, how many of us pay attention? Um, the evidence in my case is that of the intelligent agnostic is not really in this or that alleged demonstration. It's in an enormous accumulation of small but unanimous facts. How many of us pay attention to little things? How many of us, in our arrogance, overlook them? One of the great themes that we've been dealing with since the beginning is the arrogance of men, particularly men, who don't pay attention, who are above things. Agamemnon would, would not pay attention to things. In fact, there's that great irony when he sends everybody off to, to, to sacrifice, and Athena says, fool, we don't want sacrifices. And I remember lining that up with um, Yahweh, who says, I don't want sacrifices, I want contrite hearts. Achilles comes to a point towards the end of the play where he, his heart breaks around what happened with um, Patroclus. In the Odyssey, all of the suitors, all of Odysseus's companions are called fools. They don't pay attention to things. They don't listen to the gods. They're all above the gods. The Cyclops don't listen to the gods. Over and over and over again, we get instances of men who think they're above things, who, who are not open to the gods. It was one of the constant themes in ancient literature that pride blinds us. Let me go to the Iliad, then I'm going to come back to the, the Hamlet because it was close. Just to take the, this is the beginning of our work together. Towards the end of the epic, after Patroclus dies, Achilles goes out. <coughs> He's the only man in the book the only, not Hector, not anybody gets close to it. He's the only man in the book to admit his faults. He openly admits them. He's failed. He let everybody down. And he's going to return to the war and he does it knowing he's going to lose his life. He gives up his life willingly. And you know that when he does that, his mother makes a shield, if you will recall. Thetis makes a shield for him. When that shield is presented to him, nobody, nobody except Achilles can look at it. Nobody. When he presents that shield to his enemy, he defeats them. Homer is showing us that a transcendent power enters him when he admits his faults, when his heart changes. And if you, if you look at it, for nine years, he is the greatest warrior on both sides of that battle, the greatest by far. He's never able to defeat Hector, and he can't bring the war to an end. 
after that moment when he gets that armor, that new armor, and remember the other armor was from his mother. So he was using his mother in a way that helped him, but in some ways prevented him from going on. It's only when he gets that shield himself that's peculiar to him that he becomes the person he was given to be himself. Not through his lineage, not through his mom. And once that happens, he's a different man. So towards the end of the Iliad, we've got a miracle. That's in a pagan world. Doc just gave Moby Dick with Ishmael at the end. If you remember the end of Moby Dick, when Ishmael comes up, the coffin, which was made for Queequeg, pops up. The shark's beak, the shark's mouths are closed and the beaks of the hawks are sheathed. Nobody can touch him. That you, it's a providential moment. Remember, we talked about it. That he, he's a, it's, a, it's a redoing of the Job story. Shipping out, not wanting to do what God wanted um, him to do, resisting it, running. He ships on with Ahab, gets caught up in this thing, and he has conversion after conversion after conversion, dissociates himself from Ahab's quest. He pulls away from that whole way of being, and he's the one who's saved. It's a miraculous moment. And like jo- or like Jonah, he comes back to write the book to speak to the Ninevites. Anybody else? Quick, just I don't want to prolong this. Any, can you think of any other works? Almost every work we've read, almost every work, had a miracle in it. Who saw it? Did anybody in the Iliad see the meaning of that? Nobody could look at the shield. Did anybody see the meaning of what happened with Ishmael? How many readers see that as a miracle? Take Hamlet, because Hamlet's so modern. It's a Protestant Reformation play. Hamlet has his private revelation, and I'll, I'll, I'll give part of it away. You remember when he sent to England to be killed, Claudius, remember, sends him with that commission. He said, I had this misgiving in my heart that would stir a woman. It's the stuff women pay attention. Real men don't. I had this stirring in my heart. I went below. He opened up the packet, and he saw that he was being sent to his death, that his two friends had betrayed him. He opened up the packet, and he replaced his name with theirs. And then he sealed it up. And Horatius said, how'd you seal it up again? And he says, even, even in that was heaven ordinate. Heaven was watching out. Just before he goes into the fencing scene, he says, again, I have this misgiving. Something's going to happen. And we know it is. I mean, we know that Plotius and Laertes are plotting to kill him. He says, I have this misgiving again. Horatius says, I'll go in and postpone it. He says, no. If it's to be, it's to be. If it's to come, it won't be now. If it's now, it won't come later. Um, no man, no man, no man but times knows. The readiness is all. The most important thing for him is that he's ready, no matter what happens. Now, we talked about this when we did Hamlet. When he receives the quest from his father, he's receiving a quest from that old heroic epic code that we saw from the beginning with Achilles to, to take revenge for his father's death. 
after he puts on the mousetrap play, remember, he's given evidence. He didn't want to do anything without evidence because the ghost might be an evil spirit. He had to find out. Once he found out, he was determined to kill Claudius. He's ready to kill him at prayer when he passes him by, and he says, that's a way to take vengeance for my dad. I kill him when he's going to, and he'll go to heaven. And I, my, I remember my, I told you, this is my reading of the play, I think it's correct. Shakespeare, Shakespeare shows that's Hamlet's most dangerous moment. He wants to damn a man. His vengeance wants to get back, even though God has said, that's not yours. You can't speak for God, vengeance is mine. But he wants to kill him, and we know he's serious about it because in the very next scene he thinks Claudius is in the closet, and he runs him through, and then discovers it's Polonius. And he fights in the Channel Crossing, he fights the pirates, and he's you know taken in ransom. But in that Channel Crossing, he says to Horatio, I had this misgiving, and I acted on it. And he says, there's providence in the fall of a sparrow. There's providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it's to be, it will be. If it's not, you know, the reading stall. So during that channel crossing, remember we've talked about the sea. It's a place of grace, of mystery, strange things happening. Something happens to him inwardly. The Hamlet who sets out to kill Claudius in the beginning is acting under an old honor code. Is Hamlet at the end when he kills Claudius motivated by that same spirit? Does he go into that fencing match planning to kill Claudius? No, he doesn't. He goes in saying, what will be will be. The readiness is all. He's giving his life up. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's when Laertes tells him the king poisoned, that he and the king poisoned the swords and he asks Hamlet's forgiveness, the two exchange forgiveness. And the queen says, the king, the king poisoned, that Hamlet stabs him. Is that the same man... Is he the same man who accepted the, the quest from his father? I mean, my answer to that is no. And the evidence is in the play. Something happened in that channeled crossing that radically changed the way he looked at everything. He's not the same man. Providence in the fall of a sparrow. Everything Hamlet did up to that time was to super over-controlling everything. He had to control everything. He had to have a reason. He couldn't trust anybody. He would not trust anybody. He had to control everything. The man at the end says, there's providence in the fall of a sparrow. It's going to be later, it will be if now, you know. He's a very different man. A miracle has taken place. Who in the play sees it besides Horatio and Hamlet? Nobody. How many readers see it? We have not read a work, almost, almost to a, a, a work, that has not involved a miracle. Alyosha and Brothers Karamazov, remember when he comes back and he, and he has that dream, vision of um, Zosimov, you know, at the, at the uh, wedding feast of Cana. Dante, with Virgil coming to him, is a miraculous, it's a moment of grace. Um, yeah, you know. So, I, I, we, I, I want to, we'll, we'll plan to stay with Chesterton next week because we, I, I really want to. Are you canceling next week? No. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, for, yeah, hold on. I, anyway, I want to stay with Chesterton because I want to read through. He, here, just to, he takes on these three 
um, these three, what he calls these three um, tendencies of the modern mind um, coming together. On the third page in from the beginning, he says, in that paragraph I was just he says, let us take cases. Many a sensible modern man must have abandoned Christianity under the pressure of three such converging convictions as these. So the argument, the structure of the argument in that last chapter is going to be that the modern mind is the product of three worldviews converging, and they've produced this mindset that distinguishes the modern man. I mean, if you go back to the beginning, you know that he's saying that most people live on the verge of madness, insanity, that they they use their minds and they shrink them into these small circles. So they're absolutely rational. It's just a closed circle. It's a very narrow circle. And now he's identifying three worldviews that have converged to produce this modern mindset. And he's going to take these three up in this last chapter. They're going to be the focus of this chapter. He says, um, let us take cases. Uh, many a sensible modern man must have abandoned Christianity under the pressure of three such converging convictions as these. He's not talking about demonstrated scientific truths. He's talking about beliefs, convictions. These people hold these things. These are their mindsets. He, he's trying to answer them to show there's something lacking in each, each one and in the cumulative effect of all of them together. First, that men with their shape, structure, and sexuality are, after all, very much like beasts, a mere variety of the animal kingdom. Number one, that implies evolution. That we, we are products of an evolutionary process which we don't perfectly understand. We've risen out of apes. Um, there's a missing link there, and Chesterton is making a lot of that missing link. That it's, it's showing the scientific man making too many assumptions and claims which he, he has no evidence for making. Because man is very different from animals. But the first one is that most people believe that we just are animals in this animal kingdom. That's the first. Second, that primeval religion arose in ignorance and fear. The original religions came out of ignorance because people were stupid. They were uneducated. They weren't educated in the sciences like these modern people. So men hold these beliefs because they're really in a darkness and they're afraid. That's Marx. That's straight Marx. Religion is the opiate of the people. The educated, educated people won't stoop to those sorts of things. Third, that priests have blighted societies with bitterness and gloom. That is, the Catholic Church has had no effect other than ruin, that it's darkened the world by its presence. So, you know that if you go back over the book, that from the beginning he's been answering all of these agnostics and skeptics who are taking various positions. He's done a chapter after chapter after chapter. Now he's come to the end and he's going to focus on those three. And all the arguments that he makes go back to those. So next week, or sorry, next time we meet, what I'd like to do is finish this chapter. We'll take a, his response to each one of those positions. Um, and see what we make of them, okay? Next, Fred, if I remember correctly, you're not going to be here next week, right? Yeah. What I'd like to do, if that's okay, because I, I really don't want to lose Fred and Francis, mostly Francis. Um, so let's, can we'll put off meeting for a week, and we'll meet in two weeks, and we'll finish Chesterton, 
And the week after that, we'll start Scripture. And we're going to start with Matthew. So, and all I can say is hold on, hold on to your hats. I'm not a Scripture scholar. I, I do not belong to that world. I am entering a world. <laughs> it, it, I may chase you all the way um, when we get to Scripture, but I'm looking forward to it. I've been reading Scripture and just, just genuinely loving it. Loving it. So I started our class tonight with the scripture reading. I'm, I'm so amazed at, at those two readings and what they do together. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing scripture with you guys. Um, we'll finish um, Chesterton in two weeks, okay? Any last thoughts or comments? or Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, thank you for that, Karen. Thank you for that. Fred and Francis have a have a say. You guys are going away, are you? To say no, no. Uh, Sam is coming here. Oh yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be safe. Be safe. <laughs> be safe. Thank you. It's probably it's probably more dangerous than a trip. <laughs> so that's probably true. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Okay, everybody have a good Thanksgiving. Bless you all. Um, read read um, the last chapter again. It's it's just it's worth reading again because it ties up so much and it's it's vintage Chesterton so you all stay safe keep us in your prayers please and we'll keep all of you in our prayers okay have a good Thanksgiving bye, bye you guys bye